Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Sarah Hader, the founder and operator of Ex-Muslims of North America. You can find out more about Ex-Muslims of North America at exmuslims.org. This is basically a resource for individuals who are retiring from their faith in Islam, and uh, it's a place for resources and community, and also a lot of information about that particular subset of humanity. Sarah moved to America from Pakistan when she was eight years old, so she has a lot of cultural and other ties to her home country, and she decided at some point that Islam was not for her, and she's been very vocal about speaking out about the issues that she has with that faith and with certain cultural behaviors and attitudes within Islamic countries. She also highly prizes secular, liberal, Western society, and is now watching with some surprise as an illiberal and yet still secular movement that we define as wokeness for the sake of this particular conversation is rising up. A sort of fundamentalism is rising up within America in so-called Western secular humanist liberal democracies. And she's very concerned about that. So that's kind of what we talk about. And I get her perspective on liberalism and illiberalism and the values that she prizes and that she doesn't want our society to lose touch of. Again, find more about Sarah Hader at exmuslims.org or on Twitter at Sarah the Hader, H-A-I-D-E-R. Without further ado, here's Sarah. Do you mind if I um, just start? We can start whenever you want. Okay, yeah. How's it going? Going good. Yeah? Yeah. How's your uh, ex-Muslims website? going that that project that you're working on it's uh my organization it's going uh, yeah. pretty good obviously covid is hard covid is hard for has been hard for everyone um all nonprofits. it's just been a kind of a unstable year and when people are nervous they don't want to give you money <laughs> oh okay uh, yeah so from that perspective it's sort of um across all nonprofits. it's been kind of a tough year yeah. But we've we've been good otherwise. We're producing good content. I'm excited to release this really um, unique survey coming out soon on ex-Muslims. Um, it's a report. It's going to be part of our website. We're going to have articles and videos and all kinds of things associated with it. So I'm excited for that to come out soon. And you said it was a survey. A survey, yeah. One of our um, one of our projects. It's been a survey we did of uh, 470-something ex-Muslims, and it was kind of a lengthy survey. People in our communities who we, who've been, who've been assisting, um, they went ahead and, and did, filled out a survey with us. It contains all kinds of interesting information, um, background information about them, demographics, why they left, um, how they... Uh, what caused them to leave? What are the how they conceptualize? You know, these are the motivating factors that mattered to me. Um, and then, and their experiences afterwards. Uh, what you know, abuse, acceptance, whatever. Um, and so, that's coming out soon. I'm excited about it. Are you willing to kind of share like some of the uh, interesting data points, or kind of like the uh, I don't know personality uh, sure, patterns that you've seen? Talk about that as. Much as we, 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 you want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. 
What was something that stuck out uh, to you about that or that surprised you or I, I guess? Uh, well, I, I mean, in many ways, we look like atheists in general because it is atheists. Okay. It's, you know, um, so highly educated, highly, highly educated, even more highly educated than uh, immigrants are in general. So it's a largely immigrant population um, or first generation or second generation. Immigrants tend to be more educated than than the average person. Our population is even more educated than the average immigrant. Um, so we have um, highly educated population. Um, and then we ask them questions about, um, you know, what kind of household did they grow up in, whether it was strict or religious. And I was expecting, you know, I, I don't know, I was torn. I was thinking that we could either, either have a lot of people that come from religious households or very irreligious households where, like, doubt is something that... Uh, can be openly fostered. And what I found that it was just kind of all over the place, like there was a kind of a beautiful normal curve there. So, um, so that was interesting to me. Um, we also asked them about their, I don't know, are you rolling now? Are we live? Or yeah. We- yeah. We're, we're going. We're going. <laughs> okay. Sorry. We're on. Um, we also asked them questions about uh, what they, uh, what are how do their social views change after leaving religion? How do their political views change after leaving religion? And for the vast majority of them, they said that their views liberalized, um, which is what you would expect. Um, so they became more liberal after leaving faith. Um, and then we asked them about where their politics are now, where their social views are now, how they where they would place themselves on a progressive to conservative like. Um, uh, I guess, um, what's it called? Spectrum or? Spectrum, right. And the vast majority said that they were, they lean progressive or were very progressive. We had some uh, amount of centrists and almost no conservatives, hmm. which was interesting. Hmm. Um, and ex-Muslims in general are, um, you know, the reason I asked that question um, is because I, I did strongly feel like this would be the finding and i was very tired of ex-muslims being portrayed again and again as conservatives or you know right wing in some fundamental sense um and uh, you know and i think that has a lot to do with our current political moment um the way i mean you can't even call it current i guess since it's been like this since perhaps salman rushdie um but it's it's Mm -hmm. this stereotype of what ex-Muslims are and what they believe and what what kinds of values are motivated by. Um, so I asked that question because I was hoping to, to you know, draw some light and to, and to have some data behind me as well instead of just anecdotes. Um, and yeah, it, it was just, um, it, it was very interesting findings. We're going to be publishing a report soon. Um, it's long, um, and then we're going to have some shorter bits that we're going to share as well in other formats that might be easier for people to digest. Do you happen to have a control group specifically for highly educated uh, Muslims that stay in the faith as opposed to leave? We don't, um, but that would be interesting. Uh, that would be I would it would be interesting to I guess find such a group and then ask some similar questions, but. Many of our questions were specific to the ex-Muslim experience. So there were a lot of a lot of questions about 
what motivated what, what was a factor that influenced um, their decision to leave? Um, I asked questions like, what, were human rights a factor? And to what degree was it a factor? Was it a most important factor or just something that was involved or something that wasn't really a factor at all in your in your decision to leave the faith? Um, asked about whether there were contradictions within the within the scripture that was involved, um, whether it was uh, an, uh, a, a, an inability to reconcile what we knew about the natural world through science and what we were told about the natural world uh, through religion, um, and how, to what degree was that a factor. So all of those questions are there. Um, and they were very interesting. And I, I don't actually even, I, I tried to find um, when I was creating the survey, whether these questions were asked um, of atheists in general at any point. And I had, uh, I, I wasn't really able to find anything um, similar about, you know, non-believers, even as a, as a much larger group. So this might be uh, a unique survey in more than one respect. Yeah. Is there, are, are you aware of a gray area? Is there like a, a middle step between being Muslim and being ex-Muslim? Is there like this agnostic uh, kind of group or like this kind of? Uh... Um, so there's the, I guess, what, what you might call an identity, um, which is to hmm. say how you affiliate in a tribal sense. You know, what are the people you feel close to and you feel like are your people? And then where you are intellectually, um, and those are those are different questions, and people land on in different places. And with, with ex-Muslims in particular, we're a tricky population because many of us are immigrants. Um, so it's this so American culture, Western culture is sort of an adopted culture. It's not it might not be the culture we feel most familiar with, um, most comfortable in, and so there's a sense of um, alienation from like the broader, the broader culture. Um, and yeah. too often um, whole nationalities are, are, are completely conflated with religious belief. So if you are, as I am a Pakistani, um, you know, relig- you are presumed to be religious within the Pakistani community. I mean, there's, a, there's no difference between, you know, a Pakistani and a Muslim, it's the same thing. Like, if you are Pakistani, you are Muslim. <laughs> um, and uh, the the way Pakistani is organized um, often is related to religious events, right? Eid is like a common way that the community gets together. It's an occasion for the community to get together. But what do you do if you're not religious? Well, I mean, you go anyway, but um, you're at the mosque. Now you pray with everyone. Then you have, you know, uh, food with everyone and celebrate with everyone after. So it's, 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 it, it's tricky for ex-Muslims in particular in a way that I think Christians who leave the faith uh, in a majority Christian society, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, they won't experience the same kind of um, uh, pull, I guess, in the other direction in a, in a, in a tribal way. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of ex-Muslims who still feel strong residence with their cultural background, you know, whether that be Arab or Somali or whatever, they feel very close to the music, the art, the, the fashion, you know, the ways of speaking, the poetry, they feel very, that this is their home and these are their people. And then when this, um, when this, ideological difference comes into play there it causes quite uh you know quite quite a disturbance in like the psyche right for 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 somebody that feels 
pulled in like two different directions in that way. Um, I'm pretty lucky in that respect in that I am, uh, I, I was raised here for most of my life. I wasn't born in the United States, but I was raised in the United States. So American culture is a culture that's familiar to me. Um, I speak the language as if it was my native language. It is not my native language, but I understand it. I understand the culture. So the, the, the divide is not that, um, it's not that painful for me. Um, but it is often the case for, for many ex-Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. I can, especially that compounds with being a stranger in a strange land. And then that Islam being like one of the major tents of you being plugged into a community. Mm-hmm. And also I, I'm just, I'm very curious about how, because within Western Christianity, we developed secularism. We have this kind of this chain of thought and discussion going back for a few centuries now where we kind of made this secular bubble that's within Christendom. It has this weird kind of, uh, you know, rebel against the, the power structure, but it's still encased within Christendom. Is, is there something like that within uh, Islamic cultures, Islamic cult- countries where a, there's a kind of a secular place does islam have room for something that is not non-believer anti-belief but just a belief agnostic Mm. kind of discourse so that's you know that's kind of an open question and i think that the answer to that is that's is something that's going to uh be self-evident um in the coming decades um not immediately but 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 probably soon and and maybe sooner than some people anticipate um historically it is not the same and i think that that you know the tendency is to say that all religions are the same but they're not the same and the, the fundamentals of religions are different but also the histories of religions are different so it's, islam behaves differently um because islam has a different history and mm-hmm. that history of interpretation you know of 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 scholarly discussion of legal discussion has been different because it is it was situated in a different place that we're dealing with different circumstances um you know one of the things that i point to uh, quite frequently and really anyone points to if they've if they're familiar with the different faiths, is that Islam was very quickly um, uh, the faith of of those in power, right? Muhammad became a statesman, you know, as uh, yeah. very very early on in his career, um, like within his life, right? So he was he was uh, the political authority uh, very quickly, and Islam ex- remained the political authority for for a long period of time, you know, within their domain, sometimes even ruling over Christians and Jews. Hmm. Um, and so that is reflected in the way that it understands itself and uh, the way, you know, scholars have understood, like, what are the duties of Muslims and, and where the discussions um, uh, lie. And, you know, from, from what I understand, for say, for example, from Judaism, there's a line of thought and, and, and discussion that's been spanning forever of what are the duties of Jews as a religious people and citizens of a specific state, you know, and to talk about the way that those duties contradict, perhaps, um, or don't contradict, and and where should uh, a pious Jewish person land? And that's a there's been an active discussion there, a very important discussion there. Hasn't it's not the same for Muslims. Um, so some of these questions, some of these discussions um, in the religion are very new. Um, so we'll see where 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 they go. Hmm. 
Yeah, and the same with liberalism. You, you brought up uh, in there's something in the survey where you're saying that the data shows that uh, there's this adoption of liberal values. Are those liberal values, from what I hear, from what you're saying, and so I need you to specify, but those kind of are kind of part of the Western tradition. Those kind of grew out of all these dialogues, specifically in Europe. That's mm-hmm. what's called liberalism. So I just wonder, is a version of liberalism capable of growing out from within uh, is Islam and, and the Muslim community? And or will how is it going to what are your thoughts about how it's going to be adopted into that? And, yeah, and you if know, you are I, kind of finding those contours in the work that you're doing. Right. You and know. it's um, for, 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 well, just to clarify one thing, the question we asked was progressive or conservative, oh, which is different. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, and I think you know <laughs> that it is. Um, I'm a little familiar with that right. distinction. So it's, it's progressives. Um, hmm. but, but I would imagine that many of them are liberals also. Well, um, why did you ask that then? Why didn't I ask liberal? Um, or why did you I, ask I wanted to know political right, political left. That's what I wanted to know in the United States sense. Okay. Um, and, you know, we can have a discussion about where liberal, the word liberal lands there. Uh, and those distinctions, but most people aren't aware. And when you are crafting a survey, you have to phrase things in a way most people will understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's the question we asked. But I, I would imagine many of them are liberals also, um, and at the very least, in a in a in that general way that many people in the West do um, have adopted liberal values, Enlightenment values. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's. I, I wish I had an answer for you, but I've been very curious about um, whether these values can develop organically. I have a feeling that it wouldn't be organic, um, or it wouldn't it wouldn't manifest in the same way. And if we were to have something approaching liberal values, gonna, sort of, um, it, it would it would feel different. It would be different. It would emphasize different things. Um, yeah. Certainly, secularism is not as easy um, in, in, uh, to justify within Islam as it is in Christianity. Um, but other things might be easier to justify. Other liberal you know, uh, uh, tenets might be, might be e- easier. Um, but, but secularism isn't, because a deep aspect of Islam is that the state is kind of, uh, or should be, um, oh, okay. uh, you, you know, you, you, the, the ruler being the caliph and living under a... Um, you know, and Islamic caliphate is is something that Muslims should desire, and this is a you know public thing. And up until nineteenth uh, um, the twentieth century, there was a caliphate. Um, yeah, so it's it's that sort of thing will be difficult in Islam, um, and it's difficult to justify in Islam. Democracy, you can you know, I mean, there's a lot of discussions um, that are that are had by 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 scholars about these specific values and whether or not they can be adopted within. Islamic context, whether they can develop organically, the answer to that is probably no. And if they do, they would look very different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whether they can be adopted, um, I don't know. I think that I think that they can certainly be adopted by um, a a loud and passionate minority within those within those um, uh, those those communities or countries. In this case, um, because in my opinion, their liberal values are. Uh, good values. They are, you know, they 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 are um, 
they allow us to live happier lives, to more hmm. uh, to live more fulfilled lives. I think that um, to the extent that we can make them work with a population that is majority Muslim, and that is something that is desirable to do, even if it isn't organic, um, yeah. you know, in the way that we might in the way that it might be with Christianity having developed slowly over the course of many centuries. There was a interview that was, uh, no, a speech that you gave where you, I'm going to quote you, uh, we have plenty of evidence that a push for secularism or a presence within secular culture can change behavior and even the beliefs of Muslims, less extreme, more in line with liberal values. And the reason I reached out to you this time around is because you wrote on Twitter that you were going to say something about a a certain issue, but then you're like, I will get canceled. It seems like you were pointing that there's another sort of illiberalism that's rising up within America uh, around the trans issue, but it's also in other kind of progressive side of of the conversation is kind of getting rather rigid in its adherence to certain articles of faith. And I'm just wondering, what are you, what is your perspective on dealing with a, a rather uh, forceful uh, set of belief, uh, the belief system of, of Islam? Um, I don't know to what extent it's inflexible, but it seems rather rigid in its adherence to a certain article of faith. And then going from that into a liberal society and then seeing within this other liberal society, those currents kind of arising again, that that uh, human drive to be right and then to enforce that correct behavior on other people. If you have any, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I certainly, I mean, seeing, um, and I will, I will refer to it as wokeism because I don't have any other, any better word to, you know, to, to refer to this, this one phenomena that we, I think we all see and we all know. Yeah. Um, so for lack of a better word, um, uh, that's what I'm going to refer to it as. Um, it, you know, it's changed my focus quite a bit, and it's changed my approach to, I guess, religion in general. I mean, the obvious thing that that anyone can tell you is that, you know, you can lose religion, but you don't necessarily lose dogma. Um, there are certain ways of behaving that are human, and those are the ways you know, those are the kind of human tendencies that religion feeds into um, and, you know, plugs into and Mm -hmm. harnesses in a way that, you know, other institutions have not been able to harness in the same kind of way. Um, But seeing wokeism rise the way that it has and play out in a way that I'm very familiar with with, when when it comes to religious communities, you know, and I can... There, there are times where it seems where, where I have to sort of slap myself and say, "This is I'm actually in a secular society, and I'm talking to people who are highly educated, who have grown up in the West." You know, it's unbelievable sometimes when I hear what sounds like dogma and uh, uh, ways of behaving. You know, no, they, they 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 have different values and they have different goals. But their behavior, the method, the methods that they use to achieve those ends, very much the same and very familiar to me as somebody that has been, you know, talking about religion and, and reforming religious communities for a very long time. And mm-hmm. it's um, it's extremely disturbing, I, you know, that, and, and dispiriting to some to some degree, because you think, OK, I'm going to uh, y- you move away from Muslim society. And here's this answer we have 
in the West, right? And there's the shining beacon liberalism that has um, thrived in the West and has produced this society where people are so open and so free and have a level of equality and freedom that is unheard of and has been unheard of up until the very, very, you know, recent uh, past. Um, and then to see from within, you know, that hope, that great hope, this illiberalism rise and capture the most educated people, the most free people, the most privileged, you know, people within that society. Uh, it's, hmm. you know, f- from my perspective, it's, oh, so this is what we were working towards. Um, this is what I would like for Muslim societies to, to become more like, but then here they are uh, behaving in ways that, that, that feel very familiar in a, in a negative sense. And, you know, from my perspective, are threatening um, some of the very cherished uh, liberties, freedoms, equalities that we do have here. Mm-hmm. And so... Do you, is your faith in this secular humanism shaken, or is there like a, a skepticism about there was something in there that gave rise to this? Or I could pull back a little bit. When did you first start seeing what we're going to call wokeness right now rise up? And do you, do you see that its roots? Did, did you did it kind of like triggers go off? Like there's some pattern here that I've seen before that I was trying to solve in, in my right. home community. Yeah, so well, well, let me answer actually the first question that, that, that you had, which is, did it shake my faith? Um, true, it, it, it didn't really shake my faith in that this is still a place we want to come to, um, but it made me feel as if we have to work hard to keep it, and maybe harder than I thought, um, and that it is sort of work that has to be done in every generation, um, and to, to the extent that I think we're losing it here, um, we're losing it because there's a generation that does not know what it is like to live in any other society, you know, and I think they take the freedoms, the equalities, the, 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 the prosperity that they have here for granted. They don't understand it as prosperity. They don't understand it as freedom. Um, it's, it's one of those things that until you know what it is like to live without it, you can't really, you don't know that you have it. It's the, it's the, the, the fish water thing. Hmm. Um, so, so I, I'm thinking about ways that we can inculcate a sense of, uh, of, of importance for, for these values within every generation, even generations that, that have grown up relatively privileged and have never lived without it. Um, so and now I'm thinking, and so my focus has shifted just a little bit. Um, I can't say I've lost faith entirely, but I have started to feel as if that's not the end. You know, we can reach this, this wonderful place, this, this, you know, liberal utopia, but then we have to keep working. Um, Hmm. And maybe it's not as um, firm a foundation. Well, you don't like to work when things are handed to you. That's the problem. So it doesn't become a habit. You don't know what you're working towards. You don't know, um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's very frustrating to me also as uh, just to go off a little bit on a tangent here, but as an immigrant, um, you know, to hear people on, you know, on often the left disparage America uh, to claim that we're, you know, not free here or we're, you know, oppressed in one way or another because of 
you know, systems of injustice. Of course, that's true to some degree. Um, but, you know, I come from a society that is extremely unfree, you know, where, where a person like me could have never achieved the level of, you know, prosperity that I have and comfort and security, um, especially me as a woman. Um, especially me as an independent woman stepping out on my own and, you know, having my own job and, and making my own way. This is not something I could have done um, in, in, you know, the society that I was born in. Um, so I don't take America for granted. I don't take the mm-hmm. West for granted. Uh, it was not, you know, even our immigration process was, there were, there were, my family came here, my parents came here and I came, uh, became an immigrant under my, you know, as a minor Um and uh, or sorry, I became a citizen as uh, related to my father, um, and so I never took it. I never took it for granted. He could have decided at any point that you know this isn't working out. We're going back to Pakistan. I would have no legal right to stay in the United States, and I would, I would be, I would be back in that society. Or the United States could have chosen not to accept us for any number of reasons, um, not to accept our citizenship for any number of reasons, and then I wouldn't have had it, and I wouldn't have. So I, I never once took it for granted. Um, and it was, I lived with this, I grew up with this fear of something happening and our citizenship not being secured. And I would have to go back to Pakistan. Um, mm. You know, and I, it, and it was so, it was so real to me all the time. It was real to me that this could be my reality. And then I would have to you know, marry some guy and be dependent on him in so many different ways. And you know, what would my life look like? So it, you know, the way that I was raised, this was always, it was always clear to me that there was, there's this other way and it's awful. <laughs> um, and, and here I have, I'm so privileged to have um, all these advantages just merely by, merely by being in this society. Um, I have so many advantages. Um, so that's always, you know, that's always in the back of my mind. It's always been a back in the back of my mind. It's been a part of my formation as, as a person. So when I see people just disparaging the United States in a very uh, broad way, in a thoughtless kind of way, um, it's hard for me not to get angry because in a way it's sort of an mm. anti-immigrant sentiment because, you know, it's almost like saying that I'm crazy because here I am coming to hell on earth. Um, but why would I, why would my family have sacrificed everything to come into uh, this society? Right. I mean, w- are we crazy to have, to have sacrificed so much, to have worked so hard to come here. Of course, we're not crazy. We're, we're gaining something, gaining a lot. Um, so, you know, uh, that's something that I'm always thinking about. And I, I remember, I don't know if you remember, there was um, that, that image of that, that kid who was drowned, um, a migrant child that, that, that drowned on his way to Europe a long time ago. There was one they were having a migrant crisis. And there was just like this, this it, it was just a horrifying photograph of this kid that had drowned. They were on boats to, to come to Europe and they had drowned on the way. And there was just his lifeless body like on, on the ocean. Um, and I remember, you know, all the liberals and leftists around me, I will show, won't say the word liberal, but progressives around me, um, rallying around migrants and rallying around, you know, you know, this idea that we should let as many in as possible, help as many as possible. And, of course, we should. We should also acknowledge that they are coming here for a reason. There is a reason they're sacrificing so much uh, to get here because there's something valuable here. There's something worth protecting here. 
Um, and so what is what are those things and how can you protect them? Yeah, and I think it might be uh, a shallow, uh, I don't want to say the word reactionary, but I think it is a shallow take to say that they just want the resources here. Yeah. It's not just the wealth, it's the way of life as well. It's that which unlocks the wealth or generates the wealth that and, the and West it's, has. It's, it's a whole, it's, it's one big, you know, parcel that includes, yes, material comforts and those matter because, you know, I mean, and again, it's one of those things where if you don't, you don't have them, you don't know what it's like, uh, you know, what, what poverty really is, what, what not being able to afford the doctor with not having um, paved roads, you know, reliable electricity, which they don't have in Pakistan, you know, hmm. uh, like all, all that that means to, to your, your, your life and how devastating it can be to live without it. So, you know, I wouldn't even downplay the, the just, just being an economic migrant because just to live in a society is to have a level of freedom or to have a level of security and safety that, that wealth provides um you know roads that are lit up at night um you know social services that you can call on uh, a police force that exists and isn't um you know i mean we think we know corruption we don't know corruption <laughs> there's police corruption that is in the third world that is unbelievable where you really really can't rely on them and they won't protect you um you know and, and to to so even from that respect i i wouldn't even downplay that but you're right there are also so many other things that they're also looking for just for me, um, the ability to live uh, as a woman and to be able to determine my own life, um, there's so many ways that the West grants me that freedom that, you know, places in, in, in the Muslim world just don't have. Mm -hmm. And see, there's a, there's a kind of a, like a romantic problem in a way. It's not romantic to be a generation that's maintaining uh, the structure that you have. I'm thinking probably, uh, you know, Gen X and on uh, my generation, we grew up in America, we've benefited from a number of different uh, ideas that kind of drove America, but then a lot of historical circumstances, World War Two, last century, all that stuff. And it's hard to you get to a sense where like, we're just at the end of time here. And you're really insulated from poverty, you're insulated from a lot of the realities because the system is kind of just driving itself and mm -hmm. you're just kind of called to maintain that system to go get a job and work for the corporate structure or maintain liberal values there's something much more romantic about seeing that as this oppressive system that you have to break and rebirth like mm -hmm. there's this really and that might be a product of just youthful hunger to be involved in something that powerful and so the a version of the social justice uh, mindset and, and critical social justice mindset is, is being propped up and propelled by this romantic desire to be a part of history, to be a, something that's turning the wheel in a very dramatic fashion. And you see that especially over the last year, but I've been watching it kind of pop up in smaller pieces here and there since 2014, 2015. It keeps mm -hmm. on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the one of the questions is, how do you how do you fight a narrative uh, of that? Or how do you, maybe romanticism is not the right way of thinking it, but I think you kind of have to make liberalism sexy again. You have to make these kind of, these values of free speech, even though it's harmful speech. Like, 
right. powerful in some way. Um, you have to be persuasive. I don't know if that that something that that speaks to you, but I just oh, see no, that as a problem. That's, that's very much. I mean, that's that's uh, the way that I approach activism is to you know first understand humanity as it is, um, <laughs> the tendencies that we do have pulling us in one direction or another, and I think one of the uh, it's very true that that we have a drive to see ourselves as revolutionaries, especially as young people, um, and especially if we're bored, right? Especially if we generally do have a lot of comforts, um, then it's, it's it's especially important to to see ourselves in a, specific, in a specific way. And I don't want to, you know, I think you're right to to uh, be hesitant to call it romanticizing or not. Romantic. I mean, it, it, let's not put uh, a moral value on on what it what is a human tendency, not just of you know privileged you know white kids in in you know Virginia, but but really anywhere, right? We all we all have this tendency. We get to a certain place, a certain level of comfort, and maybe we want to see more of excitement in our lives. Um, uh, but so. so to some degree, we have to understand that. We have to see it coming and then harness it in a way that's not deleterious to the society around us. Um, we fail to do that when it comes to wokeism because I think certainly yeah. there's too many young people who are who have completely bought into um, this way of thinking that is deeply illiberal, deeply harmful, will certainly result in a society that is less free, less open, and then perhaps we'll have another you know, reaction after that, where then it'll become cool to, to be young and to push push back against it. Perhaps we're there now, um, you know, to the extent that we see more and more institutions become woke and adopt these. And I saw I saw an ad um, recently with the CIA. Oh, uh, yeah, the CIA. Woke. It was super it's woke. So woke. <laughs> and I mean, there's, you know, there's woke capitalism that I've, talked about and you know derided publicly in the past and then there's this you know like woke the government CIA. the woke fed you're like right uh. um so maybe we're going to get to a place in you know in the near future where it will become cool again to to espouse liberal values in mm. the face of this mm -hmm. corporate wokeism and and you know with all the squares and the suits adopting this 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 kind of ideology maybe it'll become cool again well you might have some insight into this angle. You've been an activist. You've been working as an activist and being you know, trying to create political action and social change and, and providing like resources. You're working in the activist space. You're working in the NGO space or GNO, the NGO, yeah, well. NGO space. And that a lot of the wokeness caught on there in in that space very strongly and it probably came from the colleges i don't know but what's the proper way to do activism a lot of the stuff that i was critiquing was activism but now activism's everywhere or activism some sort of weird strain of activism has activated everything to turn it woke and i think woke has something uh like an attachment there's all these values that it has but then there's this activist kind of uh, motivating yeah. structure how do you do that right or can you reverse engineer that or how mm -hmm. have you avoided or steered your your company or your your project through a, a culture that's yeah being... so i mean it's um i think you're right to see that the the ngo space the, the nonprofit space the um 
you know, foundations, uh, charitable organizations, um, they tend to be more woke than non-woke, um, unless they're explicitly conservative, um, like an explicitly conservative think tank yeah. um, can and will resist a wokeism, but, but all other, you know, nonprofits um, have, I, the, what I could, from where, I, from where I stand, what I can see um, in this space, um, the, the woke takeover happened a while back. It's been kind of a complete victory um, in a way that, you know, we're just starting to see in corporations, um, you know, in, in government. Uh, but this is already, it, it already happened in the nonprofit space. And I think that this is largely due to the kinds of, you know, the kinds of people that populate the nonprofit space and, you know, the activist world, um, which are related. They're not exactly the same, but they are related. Activists tend to be people who are working in nonprofits, not always, sometimes it's just an administrator type um, in, you know, uh, working in nonprofits. Um, but those person that sort of coexist, I mean, they're similar ecosystems, they work, work together. Um, and those spaces became very woke, uh, you know, very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, and I think that happened because um, you have a strong, it, the kinds of people that are attracted to this space are people who might one, what, what we just discussed earlier, have this tendency to, uh, you know, romanticize change and romanticize their place in the world, you know, and want to be heroes in some sense, want to be the good guys fighting the bad guys and uh, making Or even just better. to do good work. To just do, to do right. good work. That, yeah. That's even maybe the way the phrase it was a more, was a negative way um, and perhaps a demeaning way, but and of course I don't mean to do it as I am an activist, but to, to but to, to see yourself as, as, as someone who's doing good work in addition to, to actually do good work, right? Um, uh, so you, you have that kind of personality. You have often a highly empathetic personality, um, someone who's there to care, you know, who mm -hmm. does care and cares deeply, um, feels strongly, um, sees, you know, injustice in the world and is angry that it's there, right? It has a very strong emotional response um, to, to, to seeing certain kinds of, certain kinds of things, certain kinds of social ills, right? Mm -hmm. So you already have these kinds of people. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I also add, there's an element of idealism that's, that's present. And that's, uh, you might even say necessary to be in the nonprofit space or to be an activist um, uh, and, and to function well as an activist to sort of, you know, uh, imagine this, this utopia and work hard to get there regardless of what stands in your way. And often what stands in your way is, you know, a lot more than, uh, you know, anyone, more than most people realize, um, yeah. you know, in my space, for example, one can think that one can just, if you stand outside of it, you think, okay, well, what you're facing is uh, Islamist theocracy, you're facing terrorists, you're facing, you know, you know, murderous psychopaths who will just, you know, within your own families will want to, uh, mm. you know, hurt you um, for doing what you're doing. So it, one can say this is a uh, an uphill battle, but an idealist, the kind of person that's attracted to this kind of work, activist work, is somebody who might think that, you know what, we can do it, you know, we, um, so there's a level of, of you know, I think idealism there, and also this, this tendency to, to move forward, despite what might seem like a daunting 
um, reality. So you have this personality that's in this space. Um, wokeism can plug in to that personality and just, you know, it's, it's like taking, you know, it pl plugs into the back of your head and takes ownership of the body and the mind, you know, uh, and, and moves it to, to, to where, where it wants you to go. Um, I've seen organization after organization uh, dismantle their missions um, or, you know, rethink them, recategorize them um, in a way that now includes social justice alongside, you know, what might have been a more strict mission um, of like doing a particular thing and solving a particular issue. But now it's, you know, we're, we're solving this, but also racial injustice, also, you know, the, the, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, long list uh, of inequities to solve right, right. like <laughs> there's so many it's but 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 right it's just you just um expand they expand their scope uh so wide the net is so wide that in fact many organizations i feel cannot effectively do uh the thing that they were created to do um the aclu i think is a great example of this i'm i don't want to discuss it at length but i think if anyone wants to look into what the aclu has been up to um they have uh I think abandoned their mission, um, which was a really important mission of defending civil liberties to now that is, you know, defending dogma, defending woke dogma in, a, in, a, in what is a surprising and bizarre turn. Um, uh, you know, today's ACLU. And they went all the way too. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they've lost, they've lost the plot. And, you know, this is an organization which now would not do what, you know, it, it, it it had the courage to do uh, many years ago, where it stood for the rights of you know Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. And that you know that ACLU is not this ACLU. And if something like that were to happen again, this ACLU, at the very least, the National ACLU branch would not stand for it. Uh, they would not do what what they had the courage to do a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so I think we, we've seen, I've seen personally, um, organization after organization um, flip in this way. And so you have a wide variety of progressive causes that are it's worth fighting for, right? Women's rights uh, organizations, um, you know, even secular organizations specifically that are focused on, you know, uh, separation of church and state, the ACLU with its civil liberties. I mean, these are all missions that are independently worth serving and actually require all your energy to focus on and to serve that. But you, there's this flattening of, of, of the discourse and the flattening of, of um, organizations where one sounds very much like the other. Um, and, you know, everyone has sort of expanded their scope to all of social justice. Um, and in, I think in effect have become uh, not very good at doing the things that they were created to do. You know, they were founded, founded to do. I've seen this in the secular space. I'm not going to go into too much detail but it's really sad to see secular organizations, which I think have such an important mission to maintain um, separation of church and state, humanist organizations that have, you know, a, a, an important mission to spread and promote humanism, which is a beautiful um, way of looking at the world. And I, I think, you know, I call myself a humanist and, uh, and to see these organizations sort of um, abandon that um, in service of the social justice mission, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. It seems like those uh, organizations, they, they flatten they, everything. And this is 
critical social justice does this to every single organization. And it's been honed in the nonprofit space and then in academia. There's like this whole pedigree, but it over and over again, it takes over like the goal and it makes this very diffuse goal about instituting a utopia. But because it can't do anything specific, I guess it kind of just creates a bunch of people that think all the same way and then go around and kind of bicker they with each other. Things, right? They all and say the same thing. So the only thing it's producing is a certain kind of person, which is kind of a paper bag of a person right. because the it's so restrained and they say all the same thing so it's 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 sometimes i feel like i'm in you know a movie or or you know like groundhog's day or something it's so bizarre you know another some scandal it's always ridiculous um somebody being smeared or mobbed it's always for on ridiculous terms and then they offer the same apology um and you know and and Mm. bow in the way that you're supposed to and to see it again and again, and uh, to see you to see them use the same language in a way that I think they don't—I don't think they understand what it is that they're saying. So when we use the word, you know, marginalized communities, what is it, what what is it that we mean exactly? How does one become? What are what are the circumstances in which uh, a community is deemed marginalized? Yes, you know, uh, I mean, these are—it's—it's it's important to revisit uh, the language that we're using and understand why we're using it. In order that it doesn't become meaningless jargon, empty jargon that people just repeat without really understanding what it is that they mean. Um, phrases like harm, I think, are extremely mm. broadly used. And yeah. as somebody who works in a space where I'm, I've become very dark, haven't I? Yeah, I was going to say, but I don't want to interrupt your like, flow. Do you have like a, a light in front of you somewhere or like above I, you? I have a lamp. I can. No, it's just that there's the sun has come out switch. after after <laughs> after the we, storm. We did capture some lightning. Um, let, me, let me see. That lamp. There we go. Work. Yeah, there we go. Better Thank than nothing. You. Yeah, it's it gives you a little bit less flatness since we're talking about being a flat, yeah, well-rounded character. It might just not be great for a while, but well, you're not a uh, professional podcaster like uh, yours truly, so it's to uh, be forgiven. No, I, I should, I should, I should have a space like this um, in in my home because uh, this happens a lot. So I should learn from it. Um, but yeah, right. Well, what were we talking about? Well, this is a kind of a follow up question to that. What made you immune to this? To, to plugging in, to getting that plug, that, that little Borg chip plugged into you. And and I asked that, what qualities do you see make people inoculated to that Borg chip? And what qualities in organization, at the individual level and organization level, make it resistant to broadening that, uh, uh, I guess, effect, and then just creating a bunch of people that are then policing each other? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the, like activists kind of take over it and they kind of start to dominate the discourse. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like there's this contingent that comes up, dominates discourse, and then forces everybody into it. So I'm wondering if you have you seen patterns of resistance that have worked, that have survived, or that yeah. you've uh, implemented to keep your work on point with what you want to accomplish? Right. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, personally, what might uh you know why i'm i wouldn't say i'm immune i would say i'm i'm harder to convert probably Hmm. because i just i mean i i had the experience of leaving a faith um and it costing me a lot to do it you know so i there's this loss of 
uh, of honor of standing within your community. And my community, prior to me leaving the faith, you know, I was a smart young woman and uh, my community recognized that and they had high hopes for me as somebody who would represent Islam. And, and you know, I remember my, my um, it, it, not quite my mom, but like the equivalent to a Sunday school, uh, but my, the, the, the head teacher, I guess, of, of our school um, had so many high hopes for me and he was, you know, ready to help me. He wanted to see me run for office and he would always say this, read this again and again. He's like, you got it. You got to run for office. You got to, you should be a Senator. You should be, you know, and we'll help you. And the community was ready to rally around me, but I was not there for them intellectually. Right. So I, I, I mm-hmm. had this experience of, of, by the choices that I made because of the things that I deeply believe, um, suddenly becoming an outcast, suddenly becoming, going from a person that was admired within a community and as an example for other, you know, young women to suddenly become stigmatized and be the person that you're not supposed to be (laughs) and to be the one that, to be the person that suddenly moms are afraid their daughters will become more like, right? So, which is a big, it's a big, uh, it's a shift and, um, so I've experienced it before and I dealt with this before, so I can go through it again without as much pain and tears, I think, as somebody who's going through it the first time. So you're not terribly so worried about cancellation. I'm not terribly. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've been through the worst of it and I, in, in within my space and I don't think that, but I, there's something to be said about not wanting to have the same experience again and again. I mean, it's on the one hand, it inoculates you. On the other hand, it wears you out. You know, you've already experienced this and you don't want to be burned again and again and again. So maybe you recognize the patterns and fall in line quicker this time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think personally that, that that has definitely played a role in my, um, but, but from an organization perspective, uh, we're a young organization, so I don't want to toot our horn too quickly uh, to say that you know we've resisted. Um, I think that we have, and part of the reason that we have is that leadership has been very straight um, in terms of mission-oriented right from the beginning. Like, here's our mission. It's strict, but it's a very important mission. You know, we're not going to expand it to everything um, and anything. Um, and we're doing that because we believe that these values are so important and somebody needs to focus and 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 serve this and, and really nothing else. Um, so we've resisted expanding our mission. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that, you know, the woke in general count on, um, that in order to have, you know, they'll say in order to have, you know, this, you also have to have racial justice. There can be no justice without racial justice, without, without, you know, sexual equality, without gender equality, whatever. Um, but we've, we, we've said we resisted that very well by staying mission oriented. I think companies also that resisted well are companies that say, well, we're going to focus on our work. We're focusing on our mission. I think Coinbase did this recently and then we're called all kinds of um, names yeah. afterwards for being for daring to be a company that does the thing you to do. Yeah, they they lost a, a number like a dozen or so employees or people that are working for them. That might be all told a good thing because if those people wanted to speak well, speak politics, their right. whole job, right. then like go ahead Addition and go. In my opinion, because those sorts of people can really, um, you know, really create a toxic work environment that can. That, I think of. I think of this woke ideology as a parasite and I treat it as a parasite. Hmm. Um, And I think 
you need to have courage in in leadership uh, that they they accept that they will be seen as villains by some people, um, and then that's okay. That that's what leadership means. That not everyone will like what you're doing, and not everyone will think you're great. And a lot of people will call you a tyrant, and that's okay. Um, and that's what you need to do. Um, you know, including being seen as not a great person by, 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 you know, members of your own tribe. And you have to be willing to do that. And I think to some degree, the elite that fall to wokeism, the organization heads um, are people who are unwilling to go there. They're unwilling to be, they want to be the good guy. They want to be seen as a good guy um, and, you know, have all the nice profiles written about them um, in major media outlets. Um, and, and they, then they they make themselves vulnerable to, to this kind of thing. So I think you need a lot of courage. You need the the, the willingness to accept that people are going to think of you as a villain, and that's okay. Hmm. Um, and I think you need to be incredibly, like, I, I don't want to use the word intolerant, but, uh, you know, we, I think liberals in general have this tendency where we're going to, we, we will talk it out, we will, um, you know, we will, we will, uh, discuss this, we will give them the benefit of the doubt, and all of those are great things that you should do, but in a workspace, in an organization, um, there needs to be limits to that, you know, as well. And as an organization leader, you need to be willing to put your foot down and say, look, we're here to do a job, uh, and this is distracting. Um, or this is... So you have no me. problem with people thinking of you as a hard ass. You actually take pride in that. Not at all. And I, in fact, I, I hope that that's what they think, when they apply to be, you know, my employee or you know, to work with me in some way, I hope they know that that's what they're about to get, um, because it sort of culls the kind of people that come to me anyway. Um, and that's, you know, in my opinion, that's a good thing. So from from the perspective of what we saw with 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 Coinbase, to me, that's addition by subtraction, definitely. Um, and and I think that the the steps that they took were very smart in the long run. Well, your work is, it requires a certain level of bravery. I mean, even if you yourself won't accept the mantle of being courageous and brave or stunning and brave, even, <laughs> what you're trying to do is empower people to be courageous in their own life and mm -hmm. to to take steps that require a lot. You require a lot of bravery or you're contacting people who require a lot of bravery to, to step out and, and to... Uh, deal with the the issues that that you're helping deal with so you can't just be a softy at the top or you can't model i guess cowardice you can't model the negative behavior of the opposite of bravery and expect to actually get anything done um yeah and I, I i think you know we we t tend to underestimate the importance of having figures to look up to and to model ourselves mm -hmm. towards and i you know, in my own personal life, I try to, you know, have heroes in my life and to have people that I look up to and uh, view them, of course, as human, you know, not, not expect perfection from them, but understand here are the things that, 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 that make this person so interesting and worth following, you know, and worth listening to and worth being a student of. Recently, I posted, um, you know, a tweet saying in support of Richard Dawkins saying that, you know, he's a, he's a hero of mine. He's a, he's a teacher. Um, and I've viewed him as a teacher for a very long time. And I'm going to continue to do that. Even if, and of course we disagree on things, right. Um, 
but that's true of, that's true of me and every hero but that doesn't mean that they're not a hero that doesn't mean that i'm not going to continue to follow them and to learn from them um so i think that to the extent that we can we can have heroes we should we should you know choose them wisely but and be forgiving towards them um and be willing to learn from them um but there's this mood that is very anti-hero, right? That's tear down the tear down the the heroes, tear down the right. It's specifically in in the Western context, so many of them happen to be old white men, and that's just because we're we're in the West, so they're going to be old white men that are that are our heroes. Um, but the mood is let's tear these people down, you know, cancel them, cancel them, cancel them. Um, and I think that that's something so toxic. Uh, and I want to work against it. And to the extent that people can see me as a model, hmm. um, you know, the way to move forward has to be that I have to uh, be willing to accept that some people will see me as like the anti-model, right? Some people will see me as exactly the person you don't want to be. Hmm. What, what's something in your life that refreshes you that... Uh sets you back up after dealing with all the heavy issues that you deal with? What, what's a, a source of renewal and maybe light redemption that you, uh, or even pleasure, if that's what, also, it, what it takes? That's a good question. Um, in, you know, a very literal sense, there's, um, I enjoy, like, I'm a, I'm a student of history, and I enjoy reading about, uh, you know, societies you know long ago you know and and um reading sort of contemporaneous accounts um it's so interesting to see sort of the same things cropping up again and again and it makes me it, it's comforting because it makes you think okay we can handle this we've handled it before uh, and we can handle it again um and so that's a sense of comfort and um in a way that i can sort of it helps me process my own emotions towards our current space. Um, I also get a lot of um, messages. I leave some, you know, my DMs open. I can't read all of them, but I try to yeah. read as many, as many as I can. But I, I, I leave these spaces open um, and people will reach out to me and will say that I've de-radicalized them in one, you know, in one way or another. Um, and it's awesome to see that, to see that there are people who are listening, they're not participating, they're just watching and they're learning and they're, they've changed their views. Hmm. Uh, de-radicalization. That is something that I was going to do a series on, but I, and I, I still need to, because it's a very important topic, uh, to get, cause it's not just enough. It's no, it's, it's way past time to make arguments. If we're just talking about like the collection of, uh, toxic behaviors that go under the banner of wokeness right now, it's too late to argue. And it's not an argument anyways. It's more of a narrative than an argument. It's more of a belief system than, than some sort of logical system. So it's not even enough necessarily to describe it. And if you want to describe it, you can spend all day describing it over and over and over again. What needs to happen is when people are ready, that they have tools to get back out, that they have tools to rebuild uh, or to lead themselves to a fuller experience of being engaged with the world. And one of the critiques that I have of critical social justice is that it, it, you know, it broadens the organization into inactivity almost or ineffectualness, and it narrows the human being uh, to ineffectualness right, too. That's right. So, you know, providing you know, steps, stepping stones 
uh, or, or just little uh, places towards de-radicalization or under the umbrella of de-radicalization, there's a lot of tools to be brought forth and thought about and just kind of scattered around the room uh, of society for people when they're ready uh, mm-hmm. to, to go on an adventure in a different direction. Yeah, that's uh, that's an inter- I think that was an interesting way that you put it there. That you know broadens mission, but it uh, it, it it does um, I think force you know it, us as people to see ourselves as a collection of labels um, uh, in a you know in a way that is hmm. um, it is dehumanizing. You know, it it it, it, it to me it just feels wrong. It's not correct. Um, in a very literal sense, and that I feel like I'm a bigger person. Um, and I feel like I cannot be accurately described by a collection of, of labels. Um, but I feel forced to put myself there. So I can say that I'm a, I'm a woman of color, I'm an immigrant, I'm, you know, someone who grew up economically disadvantaged, whatever, like, there are all these ways of describing myself, but none of them feel right. Um, it, because there's, there's actually hundreds of labels. You know, there's there's those that are the, the, you know, certain facts that society chooses to consider important for one reason or another, um, and some that are very important. And then there's so many others that, you know, that, that describe me as well. You know, maybe you can say that I'm disagreeable as a personality, and I am. Um, uh, you can, I'm in the, in the, in the clinical sense, right, in the, in the psychology sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can, Are you gonna you whip out your that. ingram now too, your injt or whatever. I don't. I never know all the labels on that. Yeah, I. I think I, I did that. I think I. Yeah, I, I don't know which one I was, but I was one of the ones that was disagreeable. I always am. <laughs> anytime I. Anytime I do any of these, which was just fun. Um, as a gazing exercise. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I do feel limited by by you know the conception of me as a you know just this like as a woman of color only right um so i try to stay away from that label period i don't i don't describe that label to myself i bring it up in conversations like this when it becomes important it's bizarre to see people introduce themselves that way you know and say as a blah 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 uh and i i i i often step back and think why is it important to you to to, to put that right, you know, you know, right front and center in that way. Do you mind to wrap up? Would you mind getting a little tribal and plug something from uh, Pakistani culture or uh, something from your, from your origin that like a piece of art or an artist or, or something mm. out there that, that people can go and uh, experience the flavor of, of where Sarah hater came from well, my, or something I, that you even keep, keep with you. Uh, through your secular adventures? Hmm. Uh, that might be a little harder for me because that's sort of my, my, you know, earliest memories um, are of Pakistan. And because I, I was fully, obviously fully immersed, it was, there was no plan to come to the United States. Um, so all of that, what I remember in my early childhood was, um, was Pakistan. I guess the thing that How really- How were you when you- um, I was, I came here, when I was eight, seven, eight. Okay. Okay. So you had, so I spent most of my life here. Right. Um, yeah. but I, I, but eight, eight is a long time to be, you, you, you still, you weren't like two or four. You have memories of, I have memories. Yeah. I have memories and I'm, you know, a, a lot of good memories. Um, I guess the thing that I, that I 
value a lot um, from, you know, Desi culture in general. Um, the food is fantastic. I have my earliest memories or um, myself eating, you know, I ate mangoes and pomegranates. Um, and then I came to America and there were apples and bananas. And I just, I didn't think that they were as good. And I, <laughs> I remember thinking that, what, are the, what I remember having a strawberry shake for the first time. And it looks very similar to what you have in Pakistan, which I guess people listening to this can try. Um, it's a drink called Roo Abza. Um, it's essence of rose and it's oh. rose flavor. Um, it's, uh, it's like popular flavor. Um, that's in, very common in India um, and Pakistan. Is that like a Slurpee or a Slushy or some it's sort like of a syrup. iced? It's like it's like it's yeah, like okay. a syrup. Like, and, and then you can make drinks out of it. You can mix it in a lot of different things. You can you know have vanilla ice cream and then pour it over. It's this bright red thing. Um, but I remember having strawberry here, and I was expecting this rose, you know, flavor. And getting instead strawberry, and I remember how awful that felt, and how much I hated it. Um, that's something people can try. Do you, do they do they have that around still? Ruse Ava, Ruse Ava. Ru, 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 Ru. Um, it's Ava. in you can you can probably find it in any Indian like Pakistani mart, like one of those ethnic marts. A restaurant. It's, uh, speaking of food, is there uh, what's I'm and this will be my last question. Like, do you have any like your favorite food? I know this is a stupid thing. I'm just really interested in like mm. the your your utmost dish. My favorite dish. Um, my favorite dish is it, that is also a Pakistani dish. Um, it's called nihari. It's my favorite dish. Um, I what think is that? It's um, it's a, it's like a curry uh, with uh, this uh, with with beef traditionally um and it used to be as are you know many you know many good like deeply satisfying dishes they're like dishes for poor people right or used to be um and this was one of those dishes that used to be for laborers and it would cook all night in these little clay you know pots and then and then in the morning you would you would have it with breakfast but now it's this extravagant thing that you have with in weddings (laughs) oh okay it's Deeply satisfying. Very good. You have it mm. with naan. Mm, mm, mm. I haven't been to an Indian or a past Pakistani restaurant in a while, and you're bringing back uh, delicious memories for me. <laughs> Thank you for your afternoon, Sarah. This is a wonderful conversation. I hope we yeah, I really enjoyed topics. it. Thank you for having me. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.